who the consumer is or where anyone may be at in their journey today will likely change over time. And that's something marketers always need to keep in mind and why they need to continue to build that relationship and have that communication is because the reason I bought your brand last year might be an opportunity for me to buy a new product for you this year because you already got my trust on the gummies and now I'm excited about your pre-rolls. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. This week, we've got a very special guest, Lisa Buffo, CEO of the Cannabis Marketing Association. Lisa, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. It's great to speak with you. Love talking cannabis marketing on these yeah, shows. Really excited to talk about marketing today. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, you know, excited to talk to Lisa, excited to learn about some marketing, excited to determine Lisa's loyalty over here. Yeah. So Lisa, we're going to have to just quickly put you on the record. If you had to choose a coast and one that you preferred, East Coast or West Coast, which one would you choose? I would choose both and do six months in the West Coast in the winter and six months on the East Coast in the summer. Team America. It's very, very yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> I have to cut the, the West Coast part out. So <laughs> Lisa, for our listeners unfamiliar about you, can you give a little background about yourself? Yes. So I am the founder and CEO of the Cannabis Marketing Association. I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, went to school on the East Coast, University of Maryland. So definitely that that part of my life was very much so East Coast. Um, studied psychology in English, worked out there for a bit. My uh, first job out of college, I worked for a nonprofit that connected um, service dogs with uh, veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I always knew in my career, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. That has been something that's been clear to me from a young age. And so a lot of the work I did in, in high school and college was for startups, whether it was startup nonprofits. Um, in high school, I worked for a, a salon that was a startup. They had just opened and was in sort of these like junior operation roles where I would just help the proprietor out with whatever they needed. But that first role out of school at that nonprofit, it's called Warrior Canine Connection, led me to the cannabis industry in a few ways. So one, I got into alternative medicine to some degree, particularly the intersection of um, how, you know, in that case, it was service animals, how they work with um, veterans who have physical mobilities. The the model was actually having vets who had post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury uh, do the training. So it, they served both mental impairments and physical impairments. Um, it was something that was worked so well, but was very underfunded, understudied, and sort of underutilized by the government, to put it lightly at the time. And then there was this great population that had a, a deep need. So you can see like some parallels to cannabis there, but one of my roles was, so I graduated college 2012. So that was kind of like early Instagram days, early social media days. And as the, you know, 21 year old on the team, I started an Instagram account for the, the service dogs and uh, it started to take off and get traction. So we started, you know, dressing them up and doing photo shoots and um, building community around them. So we had Facebook groups and we created merch to fundraise and um, we used them to tell the stories of the vets they were helping. So in that role, I sort of immediately got to understand the power of like storytelling and marketing and how it can not only help an organization's bottom line from a fundraising or customer perspective, but also how it can communicate something complex. And in that case, it was the use of vets with invisible injuries, we'll call them, training service dogs for vets with physical issues. And so there was this education gap that needed to be explained that through good visibility online, I'll call it marketing in the sense that like we were dressing them up and they had names and they were, you know, brand, the dogs were like, we gave them little branded vests and cute little hats and pair that with good social media best practices. And, you know, the organization was able to grow exponentially and spread the word in, in a viral sense in a really short period of time. And so that kind of scratched my itch for entrepreneurship, for marketing, for this kind of doing good element um, and helping underserved populations in this sort of alternative medicine space, if you will. And I did that for a few years. And then it was it, it was a stressful you know, environment to be in working with that population. And at the time, there was a lot of soldiers who were coming back who were you know, our age and our, our cohort um, who were really struggling. And so I needed a, a bit of a break. And then that's when I started. It was right when cannabis legalization happened. So I was paying attention to what was happening in Colorado um, and said, there's a lot of parallels with everything I've just learned here. 
as far as entrepreneurship, marketing, you know, a whole new, really exciting space that having been a longtime cannabis user myself, more on the, in 2012 terms, we'll call wellness adult use side, um, but starting to explore it and, um, you know, just wanting to learn more. And I also, I, like I said, I grew up in Cleveland. So as a Midwesterner, I loved working in the garden and being outside and growing up on the lake, I kind of had that green thumb. So I was like, cannabis makes a lot of sense. And that really led me to moving to Colorado sort of sight on scene um, in 2014. So I could join the industry that first year. And then I just started working and kind of getting my hands dirty in various marketing and operations roles. And before I go too far down the hole, but that's kind of what got me to Colorado. That's like what got me to cannabis. And that track is, you know, however many years later, almost a decade led me here. I love That's it. awesome. So, problem solver with an entrepreneurial journey, finding like a wellness. Obviously, the cute dogs doesn't hurt also. So let's kind of stay with the association and the summit. How how did that origin come up? And when did you start realizing that the need for marketing and for helping other marketers in cannabis is, is one that needed to be sufficed? So when I first moved to Colorado, my first... I didn't know anybody. So my first job was trimming. I wanted to work in a grow, understand how it works. Like I really thought that in order to be successful in this space, you need to understand how any business works operationally. You need to go sort of like soup to nuts in that sense um, before you can be good at any one niche to some degree. Um, So I started trimming and then I joined a business accelerator helping manage the program. So it was a bunch of cannabis startups and I had done this uh, in a brief stint before, but helping manage their startups and getting them ready to launch and fundraise and go to market, which included at that point is pretty heavy marketing arm. I mean, when you're early stage, like napkin idea startup, it's just how quickly can you get traction? How well can you tell that story? So in those first six months in Colorado, I was doing that for about a dozen different startups. And I kind of was leaning into the marketing side of it as much as possible based on my more recent past experience with the dogs. And then once that cohort wrapped, I joined one of their portfolio companies as their CMO. And then for the next year plus was just, and they had funding, they were a tech startup, just kind of off to the races marketing. So I basically in short order was able to translate, well, thought I could translate my skills. And then I go into cannabis marketing thinking, okay, this is a playbook. I've done this. It's worked before. And I just kept hitting so many walls. Like, okay, I can't like... 90% of what I know on social media doesn't work. I can't even talk about it here. I can't, I can't do ads. I can't like, I can't do merch. I can't have a landing page with cannabis in it or our our business name in it. So I just kind of kept running into walls. I was like, okay, even as an experienced marketer, even though we're a startup and again, this is like year one of adult use, everyone kind of started realizing everyone was in the same boat and started talking to my peers and colleagues in the industry. Those who had worked for more established brands. Hey, how did you get around you know, this problem or what does this regulation actually mean? Um, So CMA started very grassroots, really just having meetings in Boulder at the time of other marketers and entrepreneurs just talking about like whatever the issue of the day was. But we had 80 people at our first meeting. And so I was like, okay, this there's something here for the small community. And then we just kept doing it every month. And six or so months into it, we started getting requests for membership for doing it in other cities. I called it Cannabis Marketing Association because I was like, that sounds professional and, uh, you know, like what these meetings should be called. But I really did not start it with the intention of this is a business model and this is what like our benefits and this is what we're going to do. It was really kind of a side project to help me in my full time role that took on a life of its own. And then I was able to see more that this was a universal problem. It really didn't matter. Those who had, you know, 20 years experience in whatever industry, but they're the CMO of like a a top brand or, you know, how, no matter how long or new you had been in this space, people, this was all so new and very confusing. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And then we built out our membership and really have just sort of iterated and expanded over time based on what the industry's needed, where we've been at, very collaborative process. But so that got us to the, the summit, which is to say, hey, instead of doing these meetings, this was a plan, but also COVID, you know, changed some things. So we were doing local meetings, wanting to launch the summit in 2020. Couldn't. We did it online that year. Uh, so we had a little bit of a, I don't want to say false start, but like we, we were trying to do it before the pandemic. We weren't able to actually do it in person until 20, last year, 2022. But we did do it online in those years in between, which did help us learn. But the point was, can we have a space where marketers from all over the industry and all over the country can come and learn and talk about best practices and really understand because marketing 
to some owners and CEOs is sort of like a nice to have or an afterthought, dare I say it. But obviously, I'm highly biased as a former mar- you know, marketer, but also founder myself that to me, if done right, is like the difference on whether it can be the difference on whether you need to fundraise or not. You know, it can be the difference on whether you your brand has loyalty or whether your customers like perceive the value that you're you're charging. It, it has a lot of power. And so I wanted to see it get a little bit more space, a little bit more credibility and a little bit more marketers deserve a community because it's it's really not easy. And it in cannabis, it just follows a different playbook to an extent. So in those early days when you're kind of balancing that full-time role with these little meetings, how are you kind of deploying your resources in terms of your time allocation? Was it interest-based um, only or are you just kind of meeting your responsibilities and then all your free time was over here now on the marketing side of it? What free, t- what free time? <laughs> um, no, there was no balance at all. I was totally burning the candle at both ends. Like, I'm going to be honest, um, working all the time. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> it was a lot, but I liked it. Like, I know it sounds kind of, you know, it's like, okay, you should have a life. And I... A few years later, I'm like, yeah, I really should have. But I was so excited. Like I had just moved to Colorado. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have friends. My friends were my community. And so I was just working to get as much experience as possible, to learn as much as possible. I was really, really hungry. And that kept me motivated. And then I I was able to build community from there between personal relationships and coworkers. So it was a little bit out of survival, but also I... I just wanted to do that. And there was so much to learn. So I felt like a student who's really excited about what they're studying. Like I was just devouring as much as I could. And so I just kind of went wherever was necessary. But I mean, to answer your question about resource allocation, because in that job, you know, we were early stage startup, but they had company had raised like a million dollars for their seed round, which is really not a lot of money for a tech company um, at the time. And I didn't have a, I frankly didn't have a budget. Like the budget was my salary. So it was like, what can you do for nothing? And anything I needed to pay for was either a no or I had to like make a case. So I learned how to do these like small case studies or these small little inexpensive tests where I could say, okay, I'm spending $100 on this, but I'm going to do this. I learned that from the nonprofit because we, they were new and they had no money and no resources. So I had sort of learned, I only knew how to work without a budget. So I just took that and translated that. And I leaned heavily into PR. Cannabis was, I mean, it was 2014, 2015. It was the hot thing in the news at the time. I learned how to pitch the media, reach out via Twitter, invite them to our events, throw events, partner with folks who had money or resources or space or time. Um, So I just kind of did these bootstrap type tests and then saw what worked and then, you know, invest accordingly. And just to clarify, it's not no budget, it's without a budget, right? Because I think sometimes kind of misunderstand how those things are. You're bootstrapping all those efforts. You're you're having to fight for a case to get all those things approved, correct? Yes. If it was going to cost something, yes. If it wasn't, they're basically like, do, do whatever you want. Just create sales, make it work. So as long as I was producing, you know, and not completely screwing up my job, they just let me do it. But anything that would cost money, it was like almost not even worth the effort of like, let me explain this. Let me go down the rabbit hole. Let me do it. It was like, let me just do what I know. But we grew really fast. And we had a lot of early traction at the time, which was a combination of like marketing efforts, the timing of things and the hype we were able to to build. It's, you know, with all startups, there's, there has to be a little bit of a perfect storm and some luck in there. It's not necessarily one thing, but the to give myself credit, the scrappy marketing and and moving quickly without any resources or budget, I think actually helped us. I agree. And I think one of the misunderstandings of marketing sometimes is how broad it actually is. I think founders sometimes have understandings of, oh, maybe it's loyalty, maybe it's 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 advertising, maybe it's content. But in actuality, it's pretty much all of those under a big umbrella. And I think one of my favorite aspects and one of the, the most challenging aspects of cannabis is how humbling it is for some of these executives that come from some of these bigger companies that come into cannabis. And they're like, exactly like you said, Lisa, oh, I'm just going to run the plays I ran before that scaled my business beautifully. And then they get started and they're like, can't do X, can't do Y, can't do Z, can't do any of those things. So Lisa, for our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar about some of the marketing related challenges here in cannabis, can you kind of list off some of the differences on what makes uh, cannabis a little harder to do marketing? Yeah. So first and foremost, it is still federally unlawful. So let's just establish that precedent. Despite where the stigma is and despite where the certain states are at the federal level, it is still unlawful. So that creates kind of your first barrier. That means you can't do ads on Instagram, on Google. 
things are starting to crack a little bit, but I'm, I'm not gonna be too generous with that. Can't really do paid ads on major sites for the most part. And it's still censored to a degree pretty heavily on social media. So just even the pure creation of content is not protected as you might think. So federally unlawful, which means a lot of some folks won't work with you. Other folks, if they do, there's weeks, if not months of compliance and legal checks and legal fees. And can you say this? Can you say that? And because there isn't really much federal guidance at all, really comes down to that state and local level. More people are risk averse than than not, especially when most of their business is coming from outside of the industry as far as publications and places to advertise. Second, because it is state to state, you can't just like come up with a national campaign and roll it out like you might, you know, your typical CPG product. You really have to do it on a state by state basis and the regs differ. So the regs in Massachusetts are going to be different than Colorado. Some states allow you to show certain imagery, others do not. Some allow you to print merch, others do not. Some allow you to have billboards, others do not. Sometimes even the requirement as far as like basically 71 plus percent of the audience has to be over 21. That number even changes a little bit depending. So there's a whole compliance aspect most marketers aren't really familiar with because of the nature of cannabis. Um, And then second, because of the federal status, there's a tax code um, 280E, which basically says if you're distributing unlawful substances, you're not a legitimate business. So therefore you don't have legitimate business expenses. So from the IRS perspective, licensed cannabis businesses cannot write off their marketing and advertising costs. So for larger companies, they're used to spending all this money in advertising because it's sort of win-win. They get to write it off and it helps them grow. For cannabis companies, they don't. So they're paying really high tax rates And there's a lot of pressure on marketers to show that return because that spend doesn't have the same kind of financial implication as any other business. And then lastly, depending on where you are, and this is just like the top of the surface, there's a lot of competition. Some markets are incredibly saturated. California is one, uh, Oregon, Colorado too. Like a lot of these states that legalized first either had unlimited licenses or they just have a lot of licenses. So it's not oh, if you build it, they will come. It's There's really intense competition. And in some places are kind of a race to the bottom as far as just prices uh, in which you can put all the marketing and premium branding on it that you want. And there's still space for that, but it is just a different consumer uh, and, and a whole different strategy. We'll go with those for now, but those are the kind of big ones that I, I think if you aren't from within the industry, might oh, education, of course. So it's not like a oh, single-use products, right? People think, oh, cannabis, you smoke it. Yes, but also there's different strain types. There's different form factors. There's inhalables. There's consumables, edibles, patches, tinctures, all these things. And then they all can have different effects based on their chemical makeup. So there is a steeper educational learning curve that isn't as straightforward as like, hey, look at this box of Kleenex. You use it to blow your nose and it is more absorbent than the next brand and it's softer and that's the whole pitch. There's way more to cannabis than that. So there's a lot of education that kind of crosses over with the science part, which we're still learning and developing. So marketers, they have to be legal experts. They have to be compliance experts. They have to be good copywriters. They have to be good educators and education in the sense that they need to understand some of the science and cultural issues behind cannabis to help uh, reduce the stigma. So it, it is a tall order. So so with all of these obstacles and the fact that uh, a lot of these companies are essentially growing almost identical products, if you will, right? How do marketers kind of plant their flag in the, on the, in the sand and be like, this is our product, this is different about it, while navigating all of those uh, obstacles you just mentioned? I really say it's about knowing who you are as the brand. Like if you think about other brands that have been successful, whether it's uh, like a Tom's Shoes or a Apple, there's a degree of innovation, but there's also like the brand. They built the brand. You know who they are. You know what their values are. You know what it's about. You can see it. You can almost like feel it and taste it. Like when you're like, oh, Apple computers, they're slick and they're smooth and they're you know, like they're fast, like you know what the value is that you're getting. And they've taken the time to build that one-on-one relationship. So really, you know, whatever you're selling, whether it's cannabis or any other product, 
you need to have that brand personality and understand your values, understand your which is a product of who are your customers and how are you selling to them? What do they care about? Are you listening to them? Are you marketing to them where they are? You know, like some people will call me and be like, I can't run Facebook ads. I'm like, well, who's your audience and where are they? You know, like if they're not on Facebook, does it matter if you're, if, you know, if your demographic is maybe Gen Z, where are they? So it's kind of at its core, I think understanding who you are as a company and the brand and the story and the values behind it. And I will say this, assuming you have a quality product and you've done that research, you can't put lipstick on a pig, so to speak, like all the marketing and budget on the, in the world isn't going to change a terrible product. Like consumers aren't, aren't stupid. They know that. But if you've done that, if you've done that and you have that component, marketing can be that element that will really take it to the next level and keep folks loyal. I 100% agree. I think it, it helps to separate the the peers from the packs because when you walk into a dispensary, there are endless amounts of choices. But most consumers, they make that choice there, but they really start the process earlier on when they're seeing things on Instagram or their friends talk about those things. So there are creative aspects that people can use, but extremely, extremely challenging. And I think one that's kind of underappreciated, one of my favorite things to ask newer consumers when they walk into a dispensary for the first time is like, why did you choose that product? And a lot of times their responses are, I liked the packaging. So I'm asking Lisa, do you think yeah. packaging is the most important component in a dispensary for brands to kind of separate themselves? Or do you think it's a combination of effects and packaging is just kind of the central the thought process when making that selection? It's always a combination. If it was as simple as one thing, I would not have a job. So it's definitely a combination. But if you think about packaging, it is like your kind of recency bias, like what's top of mind? Like if you're sitting there and you're looking at your options and you're evaluating a few, you might be more inclined towards the one that's more visually appealing. But you also go in knowing, hey, I know things about these brands. Like, you know, when I shop, for any products, whether it's cannabis or outside, I'll go, oh, I've heard stories about that company. They're doing something great. Or like Tom Shoes, for example, right there, I need shoes. They're donating a pair to somebody. Um, that's going to make me consider it more, even if they're not like the cutest shoes on earth. So it's like, it's that combination of knowing who's the brand, what do they stand for, and how have they communicated those values? Like, did you see a, this doesn't apply to cannabis necessarily, but like, did you see a cool commercial on TV? And then did you read something in a magazine? And then did you see something on social media? And then you go and the packaging is nice. And the combination of those things is like, yep, that's the decision I'm going to make. So there's that old adage that in marketing, you need seven touch points. And like some people love and hate that number, but I agree it's more than one. You know, you don't go in and be like that package. Some people, yes, but you can't hang your marketing hat on it. It's the combination of all the different touch points. And I, I refer to HubSpot's flywheel. So the old kind of marketing uh, wisdom was the funnel. You've got the top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel. But the newer model is the flywheel where the funnel sort of comes around to itself, where you, it doesn't just stop and end at that purchase. You want them to keep coming back and keep being loyal. So you need to keep them happy over time. So I actually even consider like customer service a part of marketing. Like any touch point someone has with your brand, whether it's the through an Instagram DM or a phone call or an email for customer service. Hey, you know, I picked this up. Do you guys have other flavors? Did you get a nice email back? Did they respond in time? Like they might already be a customer. They already went through the funnel, but depending on how that interaction goes, can determine whether they come back or not, or did it get left on red? So it's all the touch points anyone has with your brand. So you don't want to drop them. Some I think have more importance than others, depending on the target customer and depending on your product. But I don't think you can, to get to your original point, I don't think you can miss packaging. Like you can't drop the ball on packaging and expect to remain competitive because a lot of people do make split second decisions based on what they're seeing or what the bud tender says at that point of sale. Yeah, the bud tenders are really the key to that whole kind of puzzle because they are so influential in kind of making those recommended decisions, whether or not they're being influenced by brands to help make personal recommendations, or they actually just hearing back what the customer says and say, hey, this is what I think is good. So brand loyalty, is that something that you think currently exists today? And do you think it has staying power as the game continues to evolve? And let's say we get interstate commerce sooner rather than later. Yes. So brand loyalty, there's been research on this. Um, Brightfield Group has done some great research on brand loyalty that I've presented at a few different conferences. They did studies in Colorado and California that show brand loyalty is actually exceptionally high in cannabis. Again, those are two mature markets. So there's something to be said about that. But yes, and people will actually go out of their way 
and instead of just going to the closest dispensary near them, those who know what they want will go out of their way to find um, a retailer that carries the brands that they like and want to buy. So there's something deeper even to explore there as far as the relationships between brands and retailers where are customers shopping retail first or are they shopping brand first? And you know that's not a black and white answer, but yes, there is brand loyalty in cannabis. I think there will continue to be. One of the big things, particularly... I mean, I I think to some degree for all consumers is, are you getting the desired outcome? And it's easy to, like, I get asked a lot of questions uh, that sort of try to pinpoint the consumer as like, oh, the, the adult use consumer or, oh, the medical consumer. I'm like, I personally am like six different consumers in one. I'm a, I'm a Saturday hiking consumer. I'm a Tuesday night after work consumer. I'm a sleeping edibles consumer. Like I have different use cases, just me personally. And so you, that, those could be six different brands that could market to me in those different ways. And I'm buying based on this product is in the form factor and gives me the intended effect I need in this use case, even though I'm one person in one wallet. So I think, again, that kind of gets back to my point about, are you building that relationship? And is the product creating the desired outcome? And I know if I've had a product where, okay, this told me I was going to sleep better and I did it, I don't buy it again, period. Like you get one shot. You know, so like a great packaging, cool. Maybe I heard a good story, but if it doesn't do its job, then like, that's it. The one that does is the one I buy. So that trust is really essential. What about cross-category loyalty? For example, if I like edibles from Chiba Chews and they come out with a pre-roll, maybe Eric, uh, do you think that there's cross-category loyalty or do you think that it kind of ends with the form factor that I first found that loyalty towards? I think there is. Um, I can't speak to any like research off the top of my mind. But yeah, just thinking about how I consume and my friends and other folks I know, like whatever, everyone has different use cases and different, you know, how cannabis impacts their body, what they need. Um, and what makes it so interesting is that the line between medical wellness and adult use, I think, continues to get a, a bit blurrier. But it, it, again, really depends on the person. Um, some people are really, you know, one side of the spectrum and others are are on the other. But I think if it works and you like it, you're going to come back to it. Like with any product, it's kind of as simple as that. It, it We can make it a little more complicated, but if it, if it works for you, hits the right price point, you know, people will continue to buy. But there is that education curve where maybe I was a, at like I know some of my parents, my parents, I can, for example, like they were gummies only people. And it was like gummies only in certain scenarios, right? Like when I really can't sleep or I'm really in pain. And then over time, it's like, oh, now just whenever, or here's a little flower on the weekends or, you know, oh, this tincture is a cool new product. Let me try that. Like as they get more comfortable, they're getting, becoming more and more open to different form factors and trying new things. And that's an aspect of them liking it and integrating it into their lifestyle. So who the consumer is or where anyone may be at in their journey today will likely change over time. And that's something marketers always need to keep in mind and why they need to continue to build that relationship and have that communication is because the reason I bought your brand last year might be an opportunity for me to buy a new product for you this year because you already got my trust on the gummies and now I'm excited about your pre-rolls. Do we have any national brands? I think we do. I think we have a few. And I say this within context to the cannabis industry. If you were to say this in context to like, do we have Coke and Pepsi yet? No. But within the cannabis industry, given where we came from about a decade ago, yes, but very at its infancy. Like I would say baby national brands, but I, I think it would it would be a misnomer to say we don't, but or at the earliest stages, yeah. Anyone that come to mind? Wanna brands, I think for sure. I mean, I think you could survey people and that probably they would come to mind. I mean, they're they were Colorado are Colorado based, so they're very top of mind. Um for the community here, but they've also been one of the few that's had a massive exit. And uh, every place I've traveled, I've seen them for the most part. And I travel to a lot of places and go to dispensaries and have conversations. And, you know, it's few and far between. I don't see Wana Gummy somewhere. So um, I know things are changing. There's some big brands that have pulled out of California because they're just like, hey, it's too competitive and things are, it's just not worth it for us. But yeah, that would be one I would mention. Do you think that it's going to be around in five years? Wana? Yeah. I mean, if past performance is an indicator of future performance, they've they've really, I mean, weathered the last decade quite well. But, you know, things change so much so quickly all the time. 
But I think they've done a really good job of staying yeah. on top of all the, the things that... Yeah, they, at one point, they um, made their packaging smaller and more sustainable. They, they, I'm always seeing new products come out with them that are pretty nuanced as far as like what, what's the intended effect and what are they trying to do. And I think that level of innovation in any company and that ability to sort of rapidly respond to what the market is asking for is a good sign that you have staying power. Yeah, I only asked because uh, the dispensary I go to in Colorado quit carrying them. And they'd carried them forever and they started carrying a, a new brand. And that was just something that I've seen consistently across California and, and Colorado. So I just, you know, it's it's tough to, for me, not a marketer, right? Uh, to truly understand if like what it takes for a brand to last 20, 30, 40 years, you know, especially in an industry that's so volatile. And I mean, you look at other industries too, right? Like, there's a lot of other big brands that have fallen, right? Like GE and these other big brands have had their heyday and then they kind of dissipate. So I was just curious your opinion on on the longevity of that kind of a brand right now. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I will say this. I've been asked for years, when do you think federal legalization is going to happen? And if you, <laughs> be, be sick if, if you I know. had it, uh, right. And every time I'm like, literally no idea. We, we've, <laughs> we've been making predictions. We keep saying, if you had asked me in 2014, if in 2023, we wouldn't have seen any progress, I would be shocked. But here we are. So, you know, it's really hard to say and make these predictions because it is so volatile and things just, they just change. And, but that's what makes it so hard and to some degree rewarding, but I would say more days than not, more, more challenging and frustrating. What's your perspective on positioning effects on the on the packaging in order to try to entice the customer move forward? Maybe it doesn't have the type of research necessary to communicate some of the specifics like recovery or relaxing. I, I know that's a common technique that's used in order to elicit kind of normal feelings. But as a marketer, do you have skew one way towards another on, on using that information on, on the packaging? So there's a line to walk when it comes to health claims. So there's effects and there's health claims. And... There, there's a line there. So one of the, you know, big red flag, no, no marketing rules is you cannot make health claims. You cannot say this cures anything or this heals anything. You, you can't do that. That falls into, um, you just, you can't do that. So effects-based marketing, the first and foremost, you have to be careful of making sure you're not making health claims. So there's sort of softer ways to say like this is a sleep aid or will promote relaxation, but you can't necessarily say this is going to like stop your anxiety or, you know, cure your depression. Like you can't do that. So is it important to have clarity around that? Yes. One of the things that I think is interesting about effects-based marketing is, I mean, that's sort of the end of the science part and the science and what we know and has been talked about has changed over the years. There was, you know, in the early days of the industry, it was like indica sativa, right? Sativa is more of an upper indica, indica couch. It was sort of a simple way of create delineating between the two, almost too simple. And now the wisdom is, hey, it's less about um, indica sativa and more about the terpene profile and the, the full cannabinoid profile, what other cannabinoids are in there. How, how do the terpenes and the flavonoids like work together to create a desired effect? So there's still much to be understood and to tease out about that. We're also seeing more products and more marketing around more minor cannabinoids like CBN and CBG and the effects that they have. So there is a lot more research to be done for, I think, marketers to have better content, for lack of a better word, to be able to say some of these things in a more informed way where they can say, okay, the reason this is a sleep aid is because it contains X, Y, and Z. Maybe it's got some linalool in it. I struggle saying some of those uh, names, but you'll notice some of these products also have like lavender and they'll have melatonin and they'll have like the things you see in other sleep products, cannabis aside, that just generally promote relaxation. So like I said, it's important to have transparency and build the trust that the product is going to do what it says it does. But there's also that level of understanding where, where, okay, if you're making this claim that it's going to have this effect, well, why? And can I look at the packaging and say, you know, like with coffee, if it has caffeine, I know I'm going to be up. Um, that's, you know, it, it's pretty black and white like that. So we have a ways to go on that. So yeah, so I do think it's important, but I think there's a lot of gray space that everyone's still figuring out. 
I think that's like one of the hardest parts because like if the supervisor is really pushing at, hey, we have to get sales and you see some of your competitors are leaning more into the gray market where you don't really want, you're kind of really at a, a really in, a impasse on what you should do in order to try to communicate some of those effects, but also understand you want to build that trust with the consumer. So it's a really, really tight balance that marketers have to walk with their leadership as also with generating it from the consumer. Yeah, and we saw it play out with um, like hemp-based CBD. I know there was, in the early days, lots of CBD brands that didn't really have CBD in them or they didn't have a lot in them. And I knew tons of folks who said, oh, I tried it and I felt nothing, nothing changed. And then there's these reports coming out that like, okay, because it's so unregulated, they're not actually putting in, you know, what the the amount of CBD that it says. So they're immediately turned off and say, CBD doesn't work for me because I tried it once when really they tried a product that wasn't what it said. So, and I'm not saying that's necessarily like what's happening in cannabis, but just to the point, as far as is your product, like, are you manufacturing it the way that you said you would? Are you being compliant? And is it the right, do you understand the extraction process and the chemical process enough that that's being communicated from the production side to the marketing side, that there's clarity there and being compliant legally, there's a lot of steps. For sure. Let's do a quick rapid fire. Favorite company or brand from a marketing sense that you think doesn't get enough credit and is under the radar? I'll have to say the Cannabis Marketing Association. We've got so many companies uh, in our membership that I think do such a good job. So it'd be hard to pick a a favorite. But I think really the folks who their founders have good stories and lead with them, I personally tend to gravitate towards. So I worked in, I, I had that service dog job and then I had a stint in tech. And one of the, my favorite things about making the jump from tech to cannabis was all the founders here were like, hey, my grandma had cancer and she tried cannabis and it changed her life. And so I'm going to create a brand that's going to be able to, you know, create change in other people's lives. Or I had this accident and something happened. And like, there's so many amazing founder stories that I think give a brand initial energy and traction and like, really, like when they say the product is made with love, you can almost sense that. So those that I think have that down, it, it, it comes through in their company culture. It comes through in the branding. It comes through in the conversations at the point of sale. And those tend to be, I think, the smaller to more medium-sized folks who are really rooted in their community, wherever they are. What's the one thing about cannabis is it can be like, you know, California grown or Colorado grown or indoor, outdoor. Like there is this sense of community um, as far as the product itself too. So I think there's a few brands in that space that I think are going to resonate a bit more directly than kind of larger ones speaking from the top down. Sure. Those emotional ties are are really critical. Is there one that comes to mind that you were thinking about? Not necessarily that comes to mind. Do brands and cannabis travel? How so? Let's say um, there's a certain product in New York that I'm aware of, but I I go out West and I see it, I instantly want to buy it. Do you think there's something like traveling where when someone sees it, they they walk in, they, they look for it? Or do you think consumers are more likely to try a new product in a new state? A little bit of both. I think it depends on the person um, and how comfortable they are with cannabis. Some people, when they find their routine and what works with them, they stick to it and that's that's what they do. Others are like to try and test new things. I like to try and test new things. But sometimes also, I like to just stick with my routine because it's one less variable in my day, right? Like I just there got so many other things going on. The last thing I need is something that like may not work or may, you know, send me to a place I don't want to be necessarily. So I think it really just depends on the person. I think there's uh, arguments for both. And again, I don't think it's as black and white as like, it either is all this way or is all that way. I think it's where the consumer is or a certain consumer at any given point in time in their own cannabis journey. True or false, uh, first mover advantage is crucial. Yes, true, if moved thoughtfully and correctly, but it is not, it doesn't necessarily guarantee staying power. And sometimes there's something to be said for being second and learning from the first mover who has to make all their mistakes publicly. So really depends on the use case and the resources, but there's pros and cons to both. Hybrid sativa indica, should we discontinue it? As far as like a whole industry and whether we discuss it or not. So I think there needs to be, uh, my gut reaction is no, because I think 
there's something to be said about creating simplicity for consumers at this point in time, where it seems like folks need something to keep it simple, to understand, to have language. One of the things that can be really create a barrier for folks, uh, particularly older generations going into dispensaries is, oh, I don't know the language. I don't know the lingo. I'm not, I'm not equipped to shop here because I feel stupid when I walk in and there's all this jargon I do not understand. So I think there's something to be said for having a common language, particularly for folks who are get started. I know if I talk to someone new and I'm like, cannabinoid profile, terpene profile, flavonoids, like they're, they're just like pre-rolls. They're like, what are you talking about? You know, you have to like, you just have to start at a foundation and build. So I think there's something to be said about that language for that foundational stage for some folks in time where I think throwing it out right now may cause a little more harm than good. But do I think we need to evolve and iterate quickly as the science does and as we have a better understanding? Yes, I don't think the marketing should necessarily dictate that. Um, But you, you just can't go, you know, it took me a decade to learn and understand all this years. So everyone else should be granted that time and space too. The state you think is the most ridiculous with the rules and regulation for marketing? That's a good question. I wouldn't say, it's hard to say a state in particular. I will say I know when Massachusetts came out with their regs at the time in 2016, they were quite restrictive because they were like, you can't really have the green cross or green leaf. You couldn't have merch. And at the time, that was not something that had been instituted in the states out West, like California and Colorado. But a lot of states have changed and loosened over time based on community feedback and just how things rolled out. So I think a lot of states kind of start strict and for some, uh, we'll just call it simplicity's sake, but it's just kind of how they start. And then they learn as they go. So a lot of it just isn't fixed. But I think there are some rules that are more onerous than others and have more red tape than they actually have like desired impact for what the government was shooting for. Outside industry company, you think more cannabis companies should replicate marketing-wise? Outside of the industry company, I think more folks should find their company spirit animal and emulate them and understand why. So if your thing is CSR, like like I said, Tom Shoes, I don't know why, that was just top of my mind. But They're sponsoring the podcast. They, they better sponsor the podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah. But they, they have this CSR component, right? Like you're like, they give back is their first thing you know about the brand. If that's important to you, find your company spirit animal and emulate that. If it's innovation, maybe it's like Apple, you know, find what is the thing that you think is going to make you different or the product you think is most analogous or the company that's most analogous and just study them and understand and replicate in a way that where you can make it your own, but not have to like relearn the same lessons. And I, I don't think a lot of people, even like cannabis marketing is hard, but we, and there's a lot of nuance and difference, but we aren't reinventing the wheel completely. There's a lot that's already been done. So can we just take those best practices in context to this space? We're not we're not reinventing marketing. It's not rocket science. Um, I think the same thing goes with building a business. So like understand who you respect and who you look up to and why and dig into that and cop and copy what you think makes sense. Within I say copy and not copy, but you know what I mean. Replicate. Emulate. Yeah. Emulate. Yeah. What is an area about marketing and cannabis industry? that would surprise or shock others not in the industry to know? When I have the 280E conversation with people, they're pretty shocked. They don't understand the banking aspect. I think they, in their minds, think, oh yeah, they operate in cash, but everything else is the same. And it's like, no, it's not. Taxes are hard on a good day, let alone when you can't write off certain expenses and you have to do all this, jump through all these hoops in order to be compliant when you're not treated the same as other service providers. I mean, I know for us, it, it took us almost a year to get a bank account to find someone who would take us. And I had to, you know, like I had to make my case to the VP um, of the bank. And uh, when you work with other service providers, whether it's payment processing or insurance, everyone deems you high risk. So you pay this, like what what I kind of call a phantom tax on top of it. They're like, oh, you're high risk. It's going to be X percent more. And so you don't get to like negotiate when you say, I only have one option of one vendor who's going to take me and I have to pay whatever they're going to charge because no one else is going to work with us. So it isn't like 
there are those things that like you can have the strategy, right? But if you only have so many people you can work with, it really changes the execution. And that part is hard. When you got started in your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Getting started early. So I moved to Colorado, like on a hunch really in 2014. And I really wanted to be there year one. I wanted to say, hey, I'm going to be able to tell my grandkids I was there the first year of adult use in the, in the first state. And I didn't hesitate. So, and that allowed me time to learn. It allowed me to learn on other people's dimes in the sense that I had a, a W-2 job before I started my own business. I was able to say like, okay, when I, you know, when it's my turn, here's what to not do. And also here's what works. That I think is is smart. It's easy to see like a lot of entrepreneur influencers on social media who make it look so easy. And I, I, it grinds my gears a little bit because I'm like, it, it's hard. Uh, we, we need to talk about that more. It's really, really hard. It might be easy on paper and like can read a book and be like, oh yeah, I can do this. And it's good to have that confidence. But you also need the context of the amount of risk you have involved, the amount of toll it might take on your mental health and your family and the financial risk that you have. So I think getting started early, learning on someone else's dime. Like if you can get a job and work and learn um, and dedicate yourself to it, that's a really good first step before just jumping in. And then something I got wrong, I will say something I have learned to balance. And so in some cases, I've got this really wrong. In other cases, I've got this right, is the combination of trusting my gut and my mind. There's no playbook for being a founder because everyone's story is a little bit different. In theory, there is, but there's so many factors where you're going to know best and you're the only one who's really going to have a full sense of everything that's going on. So a lot of what I think has made me a better entrepreneur is understanding, okay, here's the logical decision numbers based, you know, next step I need to take. And then also balancing that with what my gut says. We'll say, oh yeah, but maybe you really don't have a good feeling about that partner. And there's something that's just keeping you up at night. Even if the numbers look right, or it might like logically sound good. If my gut says no, and I don't listen, I'm always wrong. So it's finding your own internal um, process of how do you make decisions and really being grounded in that because you're going to make mistakes for sure. And you need to be able to live with them at the end of the day. And no one's going to have a better sense or better interest in your business than yourself. So you need to have that grounding in order to make it through all the storms that are going to come. That's really well said. All right, Lisa, prediction time. What is the number one marketing aspect cannabis brands or companies are not taking advantage of today? Hard to say number one, but I would say thinking about the customer journey as cyclical, as a, as a circle. So like I mentioned, the, the flywheel, um, that the customer journey doesn't stop once they've purchased. It almost begins once they've purchased because you want them to come back. You want them to tell their friends. You want them to educate for you and explain to their parents or their siblings why this product is awesome. You can't just be done at that point of sale. So I think thinking about the life cycle of a customer, the longevity um, in the longer term is really hard to do when this industry moves in such kind of short cycles. But keeping that big picture, I think, is important more so than this there can be a fixation on like, what's the best channel? And I'm like, that is 10 questions too far down. Like I, who, who, why, where, when, and then we can talk channel. So like being able to see the forest from the trees, I think in marketing and knowing when to zoom out and when to zoom in is, is really tough. But I think there's some work to be done there. Kellen. More education to the tenders. I think that they hold so much power Right. I mean, I've even worked in the industry as an operator. I understand all the science behind all these different strains, right? And, and there's a lack of ability to to gain that information when you're trying to shop for, say, flour, right? Like no one is really displaying their full terpene profiles on their packaging. It's just challenging with the amount of items that go on. And so I even lean on bud tenders to be like, okay, I haven't been here in a couple of weeks. What flour have you tried that's new? Can I smell it? And it's just such an interaction at that point, for me at least, that I think that brands doing kind of more traditional like vendor days where they have a representative at the store who's kind of interacting with those bud tenders kind of provides intangible information to them that creates this, this loyalty and this relationship 
with the consumers that's so hard to track, right? But I think it's so undervalued, in my opinion, in the industry. What I do you think, that. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think for me, it's really focusing on who that target customer is and then drilling all the way down for all their specifics. I think too many times we hear, oh, we're going to produce the best in class edibles. That's great. But like, what's the price point? Who's the story? Who's the purchaser? All of those things should be representative in your marketing and your brand, your storytelling in order to elicit that type of emotional ties and attraction so that if we're crafting a, a story for me, when I walk in, I should pretty much gravitate towards that product. And, and maybe not even know why I'm gravitating towards that. And I think uh, a secondary thing that came to mind is resourcefulness. I think, Lisa, like what you shared today about the, the wide spectrum of what marketing is, a lot of these companies don't understand the complexity of marketing and how broad it is and try to loop in one or two people with a very tight or no budget and say, hey, go make magic happen. And I think with a better understanding of some of the complexities and the challenges, but giving the resources and the, the need and the importance that marketing is, I think can make a massive difference for these companies who are bot- battling for shelf space and then obviously fighting for the price compression. So Lisa, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to visit the Cannabis Marketing Association and be a part of the summit. Where can they find you? So the CannabisMarketingAssociation.com, our Cannabis Marketing Summit is June 21 through 23 in Denver, Colorado. The theme this year is doing more with less, scaling sustainably. So it's two full days of workshops, solo sessions, and some panels, but we're really focused on workshops and solos this year um, to teach you how to do more with less and scale um, thoughtfully in all the verticals, SEO, um, packaging, branding, you name it. So we have a theme so that as we go into each topic, there's context to it, but it's it's a fantastic conference. We, we do a welcome reception the night before. Uh, so it's all day Thursday, all day Friday, we're launching an award show. So our awards entries will open soon and the uh, show itself will be at the summit. And you can find us on social media at Canada Marketing. I'm on social media as well at Leibuff, L-I-B-U-F-F. And I think I'm at Leibuff21 on Twitter. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This and fun. LinkedIn. Yeah, we'll link it all up. And if you find me on LinkedIn, just mention, uh, hey, I listened to you on the podcast because I get a lot of random requests. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.